Please note, this edition of the podcast contains coarse language, which some listeners might find confronting. The art of Banksy now showing in Sydney, but it's an unauthorised exhibition. We'll speak with Steve Lazaridis about what to expect and about his role and the controversy surrounding the show. The other art fair opens this month for the second time this year, and the founder, Ryan Stanier, joins us from London to give us his take on promoting emerging artists. And one of the most engaging artists in Australia today. Catherine Longhurst has a show of her work underway in Queensland and will give her a call to talk about her art and her teenage years spent behind the Berlin Wall and to her life and art in Australia today. I'm Tim Stackpole and this is Inside the Gallery. Thanks for downloading the podcast once again and with such a bumper lineup of conversations today, for the first time in a few episodes we get to welcome back... The Pixel Perfect Pro Lab Podcast Prize Wheel. Here it is. Now, for those who don't know, this prize wheel, we use it to choose the order our guests will appear in the podcast. The sponsor of the prize wheel, Pixel Perfect Pro Lab, they're terrific at faithfully reproducing print versions of works of art and also offer full photographic support services as well, from stock to processing with special attention given to colour rendering, customer service and advice. So please do support our sponsor by visiting www.pixelperfect.com.au because their support actually goes towards the transcription of our interviews so those art lovers who are hearing impaired can also enjoy the content of this podcast. That's pixelperfect.com.au. Okay, so now I use the whiteboard marker to write the names of the interviewees on the prize wheel. Steve Lazaridis, he's in London at the moment regarding Banksy. Catherine Longhurst and her exhibition at Gallery One in Queensland. And Ryan Stanier, he's also in London at the moment, but will be in Sydney for the other art fair at the end of the month. Okay, let's give it a spin. And we've landed on Gallery One in Queensland. They're currently showing Catherine Longhurst's solo exhibition filled with Catherine's trademark glamorous women in military attire and brave young people. It runs until October 31st if you want to take a look. It's her second show at Gallery One, and again, her large canvases recall the highly optimistic propaganda art of socialist realism, a genre that dominated the art scene in Catherine's childhood growing up in East Germany. Her story, like her work, is utterly engaging, so with the exhibition now open, it's a great opportunity to catch up and chat. Catherine, thanks so much for joining us on Inside the Gallery. Well, thanks for having me. Now, you're known for presenting strong women and children in your work. And for people who don't know, can you give us a bit of an idea of of your history and what generates that motivation for you? Well, there's a couple of things I would say. First of all, you know, the women are painted, they're quite often painted in military outfits and and Mm. sort of pilot helmets and and things like that. And uh, I personally, I I grew up in East Berlin, in East Germany, and that was during the time behind the Iron Curtain. I grew up in communist East. So... I was surrounded by propaganda art. This is this is all I would know. Mm. In um, art history in school was all about you know the Russian painters and and the history of socialist realism. And if when we went to museums, that that's all I would see. So this is obviously it, it created a love for figurative work for me. But also you know now I I have the freedom to to mock that sort of work work mm. a bit because my content is is quite different 
And um, so I'm using the the imagery and symbolism of propaganda art to to promote my own sort of visions and my own agenda, which is coming from from a very feminist point of view. Yeah, I would say because through art history we we've we've seen the overwhelming majority of work is of male heroes, male protagonists. They're the strong ones, and then women are sort of used as decorations in these paintings. Yeah. supporting the, the male protagonist. It's time for us to, to rewrite um, history and, and give women the opportunity to speak and tell their story and also creating imagery where, where women go like, wow, that's me. I, I can see myself as, as strong and powerful and I can do it all and something that women can relate to. So yeah. um, the, the children as protagonists in my work comes from a series I, I did a couple of years ago and it's st- still recurring in, in my work. I painted a series of, um, it was called Forging of the Human Spirit and um, it sort of deals with uh, kids or, or people in general overcoming hardship and how that forges them and and their soul strengthens them. Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah. it's sort of like metal working when you beat a metal to make it stronger, but if you beat it too hard, it will break. Sure. It will become brittle. So that's sort of, you know, I've painted kids that have been through rough times and how they've come out the other end and, and stuff like that. So, so that's sort of a child that is coming out strong and beautiful. Yeah. So that's still reoccurring in my work. Yeah. If you take a longitudinal look at your work and considering you left East Berlin with the family, moved to Scandinavia, eventually ended up in Australia, if you look back over your work, do you see milestones and do you see any changes in your style which were significant points in your life at the time? Um, I think there's always, you know, obviously subtle influences and that is when you live in different countries, you get, you know, I lived in Belgium for a year, you get influenced by Art Nouveau, you mm. know, Scandinavia would have given me a certain colour scheme. But when when it comes to content and subject matter, I think certain mentors had a huge influence. For example, I shared a studio space with uh, some other artists that had a huge influence on my work because we would discuss subject matter and, and content all the time and, and you would think about it like all day long that that sort of really shaped my and, and it's grown my voice and made it stronger mm. and louder mm. so I, I think that's that's that were sort of the main influences for me because when I first started painting I was because um, growing up in the east you, you long for beautiful things mm. and you you would smuggle in beauty <laughs> magazines because they were forbidden. Right. And, and so a lot of my work in the early days was very pretty mm. and very decorative. You know, I really had to find my voice in, in my message and what I wanted to say and not drown it out in being too pretty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and speaking about your voice, and I'm just wondering about the artist's inner voice that you have, considering the, the multicultural influence your life has had on you, when you are doing your work, how are you talking to yourself in your own head? And uh, what languages are you using while you're doing that? Do you cross over and switch between German, English, Swedish? <laughs> um, I think now it's actually English. Uh-huh. So because I, um, the only time I speak, German is, you know, if I call my mum or my brother mm. and Swedish, you would we still have friends over there, but it's it's very rare. So English is the dominant language. But get this, I still count in German. Like, you know, if I have to calculate anything in my head, I cannot do that in any other language. It's, it just comes naturally in German. So. 
And, and are there any times when you kind of check yourself while you are doing your work in terms of, wow, where did that thought come from? Or where did that inspiration come from? Do you still surprise yourself? Oh, absolutely. And and I think, you know, having seen the world from both sides of the wall, you constantly question where your information comes from, where your beliefs and your thoughts come from. Because when I left East Germany and then was reintroduced to history and to politics and uh, and, and all of a sudden you, you realize everything you've learned is is so different to what you're being taught now. And mm. uh, and all of a sudden you, you find you know okay so who can you trust like who who tells the truth you you don't know right. you just have to uh, look at you know what's your agenda where's your information coming from what is it based on and I find it really hard to to actually commit to. A point of view, so I, I quite often sit on the fence for a long time <laughs> because I'm just worried that you know I might be committing to propaganda or I might be committing to the wrong to side of history. Yeah, exactly. So um, it, it's really it's really tricky. It's sort of like you know you're waking up in the matrix and you just you realize it's not. It's not what it is. The exhibition at Gallery One, you, this is not your first exhibition there. Ode to Femme was a sellout. I, I'm guessing it didn't take much to have you accept the opportunity to have another exhibition at Gallery One this time around. I'm assuming that's a rhetorical question. <laughs> of course, if they're selling, of course, you go back and say, <laughs> yay. <laughs> um, yeah, they've been, they've been really, really good. I mean, all of I'm really, really lucky with um, the, the three galleries I have in Australia hmm. are working very, very hard for me. And I feel a really close relationship to all of them where I can just call up and say, hey, you know, I've, I'm struggling with this. Can you help me out? And what's your opinion on this? So like all of them are working very, very hard. And the girls up there in in Queensland, they're just fabulous. They're fabulous. Catherine, your work always sells. When you're creating a series for a gallery, with the years of your experience, do you now know which piece is going to sell first, perhaps from the catalogue, even before the gallery opening? Never, never. It's the weirdest thing. It's the weirdest thing. Like my favourites, for some reason, are not the ones that go first. Mm. So usually the gallery is a lot better at picking, you know, the favorites and that's usually the work that goes on the catalog front or that goes as the the thumbnail on the website or whatever. But like my favorites, because they're quite often, you know, personal to me and I have a relationship with the the, the model or the the subject. Um, But yeah, they always sell last. I don't know. I'm a really, I think artists in general are really bad judges of their own work. Oh, yeah. Let someone from the outside come uh-huh. and decide. <laughs> and and I've, I find your work terribly moving and, and quite emotive. And how moved are you? Is there a single painting or perhaps a, a series of them which have really torn your heart out when you've finished them? And, or, or is it a cathartic experience for you? Do you feel a great sense of relief after you've finished something which is full of emotion? Um, thank you. Thank you for saying that. And, you know, especially coming from, from you as a male audience to say that, um, it's, it's really, really lovely because, you know, I think most artists I know wear their hearts on their sleeve. Mm. They're, they're quite, the emotions are always quite close to the surface. Mm. And I think in, in order to create good work, you need 
to allow yourself to feel and to feel deeply, which has its good sides and bad sides because if, if you have a setback or, or something is, is hard, artists feel it very deeply. But you also feel into human connections very deeply. And, yeah. and I mean, it's happened to me that I've had, uh, in particular, women show up at my exhibition and they've said, oh, my God, I've, I've just bought one of your works and I look at the painting and it reminds me of who I used to be and who I want to be. And we get like these, these moments where we just stand and maybe hold hands and just feel mm. connected. Mm. And you cannot buy that with any money in the world it's mm. it's the, the biggest reward you can get as an artist when sorry i'm getting a bit emotional about that um the biggest reward you can get as an artist to feel that connection that yeah. and and feel that your work reaches beyond being decorative on someone's mm. wall but mm. it actually means something to someone and will make a difference to them Catherine, thank you so much for your chat on the podcast. I really appreciate your time and uh, always loving your work and uh, good luck with the exhibition at Gallery One. Oh, thank you so much, Tim. So appreciate your call. Thank you. That's Catherine Longhurst talking about her work and particularly about the exhibition at Gallery One in Queensland. And if you can't get along to the gallery itself in Southport, then please do check out the catalogue online at gallery-one.com.au. That's gallery one All right, two more interviews to go. Ryan Stanier talking about the other art fair and Steve Lazaridis talking about the Banksy exhibition. Let's give the prize wheel a spin. And the prize wheel has chosen Ryan Stanier. Now, in our last edition, we talked about Sydney Contemporary. And now for the second time this year... The Other Art Fair is opening from the 24th to the 27th of October, held for the first time in the fair's new home of the Cutaway at Barangaroo. The Other Art Fair, it's a bit different. It presents the unique opportunity to discover and buy contemporary art direct from emerging and independent artists, about 130 of them or so this time around. First put together in the UK by Ryan Stanier, the other art fair has since hosted 40 editions to date in Bristol, Chicago, Dallas, London, Los Angeles, Melbourne, New York and Sydney, of course. Ryan is in the UK right now, but joining us via WhatsApp, it's great to talk to you, Ryan, on Inside the Gallery. Thanks, yeah, uh, pleased to be here. Now, as I alluded to in the introduction, the history of the other art fair, it's quite extensive. Can you just sum up for us how it all came about? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so the other art fair really came from me seeing, well, okay, so me having a lot of artist friends back in 2011 um, who were all looking for, I mean, it started off in London, we're looking for opportunities to, number one, to meet gallerists and get sort of seen within the art community. Um, Secondly, they were looking to try and sort of sell more art to sort of progress their careers um, and that side of things. Um, my background was working for various sort of art fair organisers. So I sort of saw how art fairs are run and, you know, how they should look and all that sort of thing. Um, and then off the back of that, I sort of had this idea of rather than working with galleries actually taking the booze. What about sort of constructing some sort of model where it could be the artists that don't have an exclusive representation with a gallery? Those artists themselves actually take the booze. Um, and then for an audience member, for an art lover, it's great because you get to come along and you meet artists directly. You get to hear exactly from 
the maker of the work, exactly the ideas that go into it, the inspiration, um, also making connections with the artist. And that was really just where it all came from. Um, that was back in 2011. <laughs> Fast forward to today, um, we've run now over 40 art fairs sort of internationally. Um, after, after London, we then went into Australia. Um, I had some connections into Australia. I came out. I sort of, sort of immersed myself as much as possible sort of in the arts community in Sydney initially and then, then in Melbourne, put together a team there. We could really see that there was two sides which I'm always looking for, which is number one, there's a thriving art community, which there is. Um, and then secondly, there's just this real enthusiasm. I mean, I'd even say as of today, of all the art fairs I've run, there's probably more of an enthusiasm from, you know, art lovers in Australia coming to a fair, wanting to speak to artists, engage with artists, participate in the various things that we've got going on at the fair um, and just sort of, you know, buy art. Um, so really, that's where the whole sort of idea came from and how we got here. And that enthusiasm that you talk about has led you to running this second fair in a single year. Yeah. You must have a lot of confidence in the art scene here in Australia right now. Yeah, I mean, so our positioning within the sort of art community, if you like, sort of allows us to do that. And what I mean by that is that because of the sort of price point at which we sell artwork at, I think the average price is around $400. So it's at a price point where... You know, it's not like a big investment piece where possibly you have to, you know, save up and, um, you know, make one or two purchases a year. At that price point, it's a sort of place where you can come. You can come to an event twice a year. Each event critically feels very different. So it's got different content, different artists. Um, and it means you can, you know, perhaps spend, you know, buy multiple pieces throughout the year. Um, we don't have the huge marketing budgets of other sort of big international fairs. So also it means that we can keep, you know, keep the brand alive and also critically working with artists throughout the year. Um, you know, if you're an artist and you don't have gallery representation, then it seems a bit of a shame to only be able to sell your work at a fair once a year. So by running it twice, it enables, you know, enables that sort of opportunity twice a year. And most importantly, um, in sort of our most, uh, you know, sort of our, be our best markets, which would be probably London, L.A., New York and Sydney, you know, the market's there where, you know, you can run a fair twice a year. People are excited enough to come twice a year. So that's, that's the other reason. Given your focus, it's on emerging artists, but considering the popularity of your fair, are you ever having to push back those artists who perhaps want to jump on the exposure that you offer but wouldn't necessarily be considered emerging artists? Not really. Um, I mean, it's such a grey area anyway uh, to sort of, you know, classify what an emerging artist is. I mean, some artists that have been around for 20 years working with, you know, blue chip galleries would still probably consider themselves emerging. Um, but essentially, I mean, our criteria is that as long as you don't have an exclusive agreement with a gallery, then you can participate in the fair. Um, and the reason why that's so key to us is that we're absolutely in no way against the gallery system. We're all in favour of the gallery system. You know, galleries do a fantastic job of helping artists and selling their work and uh, supporting them that way. And the purpose of the fair really is to enable artists that aren't at that stage yet, perhaps, um, to actually still be able to sell their work. 
Um, also, it's a place where, you know, artists now, you know, they get signed. We, we invite all the galleries in the city along to the fair. We encourage them to, you know, engage with the artists and talk to them. And, you know, and on many occasions, an artist would then start working with the gallery. So what can we expect to see at the other art fair this time around? Well, I mean, it, it's, in terms of the artwork, it's always such a mix. So in, what's really important, I think, when we're looking at each fair is that there's a real mix of like different artists. So different artwork, different mediums. Um, actually, I mean, I'd say artists of slightly different levels as well. Uh, so you might see everything from um, a big installation to painting to photography. I mean, it really is a big mix. Ryan, before we wrap up, can I get your perspective on the art world internationally as it compares to Australia? Yeah. At the moment, locally, our arts funding has been tightened and there doesn't seem to be a level of um, buoyancy. I guess I could describe it that way, yeah. uh, as perhaps we've seen in previous years. But can you see that too, objectively? Um, well, I mean, I, it's certainly not what I've experienced. Um, I mean, I would say if I was to think about my audiences for each of the different fairs, I mean, I would say they're, they're pretty similar. Um, but the one thing that always stands out to me in Sydney, which really is quite unique to a lot of other cities that we work in, um, is really just the, the fearless nature of a talking about art, speaking to an artist about their work, which in itself can be quite terrifying. Um, and also just the, um, the fearless nature of actually buying something. I feel in Sydney, especially, and actually in Melbourne, People are more, you know, that they're willing to take a risk. They're they're confident in what they want to want to own. So I think when you look at maybe a slightly different market, like maybe London or New York or LA, perhaps there's more consideration into if I like an artwork, do um, you know? I'm thinking, what are my friends going to think about this? What does this say about me? There's a lot of considerations that go into it. I think in Sydney, I think especially that there's a real, like, people know what they like. They're not worried. They're not afraid to own something that somebody else might not like. Um, and I think that's what's really unique about it. And I think it's really refreshing. And that's why, especially, I love, I love sort of our Australia affairs, um, you know, especially for that. Well, Ryan, it's been great to speak with you on Inside the Gallery. Really appreciate your time. And I wish you all the very best for the other art fair coming up at the end of the month. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. That's Ryan Stanier, the founder of The Other Art Fair, those art fairs are organised right around the world and the next one in Sydney opens for just a few days from October the 24th at Barangaroo and there are more details available at sydney.theotherartfair.com. Please note, this edition of the podcast contains coarse language, which some listeners might find confronting. No need to spin the Pixel Perfect Pro Lab podcast prize wheel this time because we've just got one more interview to undertake. The Art of Banksy, the world's largest touring collection of Banksy's works, is now showing at the Entertainment Quarter in Sydney. It showcases 80 original works associated with arguably one of the most intriguing and talked about artists in modern history. The show is curated by Steve Lazaridis. That's Banksy's former manager and photographer. Now, it's not the first time the exhibition has toured Australia previously seen in Melbourne, during which another street artist painted a representation of Steve as Judas, as this exhibition is not authorised at all by the artist. But nonetheless, it's upon our shores, and to talk about it, Steve Lazaridis joins us on the phone from London. And Steve, I'm guessing the exhibition, as it has toured around the world, has been well received? 
Yeah, it's gone down really, really well. If, if you think about it, you, there's nowhere else in the world to see any banks who works. There's nothing left on the streets. And, you know, it's difficult to leave her people's prized possessions off their walls yeah. to allow them to kind of loan them to go out on tour. So it's, look at this way. This is an exhibition of either Basquiat or Herring. Yeah, it would be a world being exhibition. Yeah. And I think it's it's on that level. You, you know, he's getting to the stage now where he's entering into that bracket where I think, you know, before it was Herring and Basquiat, and now I think Banksy's forced his way into that. So, you, you know, this is a world-class exhibition. To be fair, it shouldn't have to be done this way. This should be being taken on by museums. But the museums just don't have the balls to do it, mm. and they don't like it because it's populist. Yep. So it takes people like the, like Red Balloon and the promoters there to really kind of put their ass on the line and take this on tour because they didn't know it was going to be a success. And with the size and the production of the show, it's not a cheap thing for them to do. You know, it's a big show that they're moving around the world. These things cost money, which again is that thing where there's been a lot of talk about how it's you know, outrageous for it to be charged for people to go into a show. Mm. But, you know, by the same thing again, people wouldn't think twice if it was any other artist other than Banksy. But there is some controversy here, and let me just get straight into that as well, because it is 100% unofficial, unauthorised. And do you think that's one of the reasons why major museums won't handle this? No, I didn't mean that that way, to be honest. Mm. It was more like the museums should be contacting these clients and contacting the artists. And maybe you're right. Maybe that is the case. But, you know, my thing about this is, one, he's an artist of, like, he is the preeminent artist of a generation. Yeah. Yeah. And secondly, he's reached the general public in a way that very few artists have done before him. Mm. And I think there'll be very few artists who do it after him. Mm. You, You know, it's very rare for an artist to resonate with the general public across the world yeah. because they feel like alienated. You know, museums, do I still feel uncomfortable going into galleries and museums. You're made to inherently feel stupid the minute you go in if you don't understand the message in the painting. And, you know, he's reached out to people and the public made him. He is their folk hero. And I think there is a duty for them to be able to see his work. So the fact that the fact that it's unauthorized is to a point neither here nor there, as far as I'm concerned. Mm. It's I think they made him; they deserve to see the artwork, and this is never going to happen unless people like me and the promoters put this on. Now, Steve, you always speak very highly of Banksy, but your relationship with him is fairly cool. I understand. Do you think you're doing him a bit of a favour by dragging this exhibition from his perspective, kicking and screaming around the world? Are you doing what he should be doing? That's hard to say, to, to be honest. It's kind of, you, you know, he's a genius and he's always done things his way. And, you know, and that's gotten where he is. And he's, you know, he's absolutely brilliant at it. However, he's not done a Banksy exhibition since when he did the museum show in Bristol. So the, the public haven't had a chance to see his work in this kind of format. And also, you know, a lot of this is the kind of early work that mm-hmm. he did, which is where he really made his reputation. You know, it's a time when he was painting free and unfettered. He didn't have 10 million people looking at everything he did. There was no Instagram. There was no camera phones. So he, he didn't have the pressure that he does now. And, you know, I just think that I, I don't think I'm doing him a favor because I think that just sounds incredibly arrogant. <laughs> but, um, you, you know, it's just more 
getting it out there so people can see it. Like I know you can see all these images online, but there's a reason that people queue up to see the Mona Lisa, the Louvre. Yeah. It's it's not the same as seeing a piece in person. Yeah. And I think, like I said, I think people have earned the right to see his work. Now, considering that, what can we expect to see in the exhibition? Uh, there's a whole raft of screen prints, and I think that, to be fair, he's one of the few artists that trickled up. Mm. Yeah, so it kind of started with the screen prints becoming popular, and then the painting. The paintings were always there and thereabouts, but they didn't increase in popularity until the explosion on the screen prints. So, and, you know, true to his ethos at that point in time, we were making cheap, affordable art for the masses. Yeah. And that, so I think they're an incredibly important part, not just of his career, but of the, the resurgence of the movement itself. Yeah, because this suddenly meant that people felt that it was okay to buy art. And this is going back to things being adopted by the general public. And I think the general public have adopted the graffiti movement, mm. not just him, because you've got other people out there like Shepard Ferry, JR, and Jose Parler, and all these other guys that are out there that are also, you know, generating huge amounts of interest in their work. And again, through the general public, not just through the art institutions. And on top of that, you've got a huge amount of um, originals that are in there covering the different kind of styles that he mm. painted into him, then corrupted oils to the multiple stencil canvases. There's ephemera in there as well, like the the, um, the amazing punk tag Paris Hilton CD he did yep. with Danger Mouse, where they reverse shoplifted them into various music shops on um, Oxford Street years ago. Mm. So there's kind of, you know, posters he's made earlier in his career, you can be bored senseless by me talking about shit. <laughs> um, so, you, you know, so you, you know, there's a large amount of my photography in there from, you know, because I, I really started off as his documenter more yeah, than anything yeah. and just a- accidentally became his dealer and manager and everything else. So there's the, the great thing about this is, is there's a lot of stuff in there to contextualize his work. So it's not just a bunch of paintings shoved up on a wall. It's an educational experience as well, I'm guessing. It is as well. It's a, you know, this is a journey through who Banksy is and how he became the person he is today. You know him. Yeah. Millions don't. What sort of a person is he? Oh, I'm not going into that. He's boring. Is he a knockabout sort of lad? Or is I, again, it, is it very... I'm, I'm not going into it. He's, he's very, he's, he's dedicated to his work. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and it's like, you know, like all great musicians and everybody else, there's no switch on, switch off. Yeah. Yeah, he's living this, you, you know, 24-7. Yeah. In terms of how you see his work, does he reflect society or does he have his own perspective on society or or does he create comment? I mean, what do you think is the crux of his work? I, I think what he was doing, and I think when he kind of owned the zeitgeist at the time, he was tapping into, you know, stuff that's happening in the in the UK mainly at that point in time. Mm. You know, it was a time when Labour was still in power, and, you know, but there was a lot going on in the world. There was the Afghanistan war. Mm. So, you know, there's all those wrong war placards that he made, the Happy Choppers, which is all about friendly fire. that was happening. There. So I, he was a commentator. But, um, yeah, I, his, his girlfriend at the time put it very, very simply. Yeah. yeah? She said, it's sick form politics. Yeah. Yeah, which it kind of is. It's like taking an incredibly complex situation and boiling it down mm. either into a one-liner or an image. Mm. And again, I think that's what the public loved. It was something they could, it was instantly accessible 
and easy to understand. So I think, yeah, I think he's a, you know, a general commentator on society. Yeah. Now, to the practical side of this, Steve, in terms of actually collecting these individual pieces from private collectors, which are obviously worth millions, as you talked about before, yeah. how tough was it to pull this together from all these collectors and say, trust me with your work, I'm going to take it around the world? It's a tough one. Yeah, yeah. I think it's more like leaving a hole on the wall. Yeah, you know, people people are very attached to their work. Mm. So, but you know, I think some. But then, you know, I, I, but at the same time, I think some of them would have had them in storage or mm. didn't have them on the walls anymore. Mm. And you know, I think they also buy into the fact that it, you know this is something that is that is a good thing to happen. I would expect so, but I mean, even given that, I mean, this stuff is worth millions of dollars. I'm just, to be honest, I'm absolutely surprised that you were able to pry this out of the fingers of the people who know how important this stuff is and how rare it is and the enigma that he I, is. I think, I think also it adds to like a provenance of a painting itself. Mm. So, you know, if this is a, a, a painting that's gone off on a world tour that's gaining notoriety as it goes, um, you know, that piece of work becomes, has it more provenance to it. And, you know, in the kind of art world, it's the, as the years go on and the more provenance a piece gets, yeah. the more valuable it is, to, to be honest. Yeah. So if it's a fucked up situation, but that's the truth. Yeah. Okay. Now, in terms of how you handle this, when the exhibition was in Melbourne, I mean, you, you copped yeah. quite a bit of flack and indeed you were depicted as a, as a betrayer, to be honest. No, that, that, was, that was the best piece I've ever seen, to be honest. <laughs> and I'll say this to their face, yeah, Melbourne could go fuck themselves. Um, I find it quite funny because they're everything I hate about oh. graffiti at, at the moment. Oh, okay. In the fact that, you, you know, they build, they build themselves as the uh, street art capital of the world. Mm -hmm. and But all they're doing is perpetuating anodyne, terrible pieces of art painted by people that are probably like IT consultants in the week and spray can warriors on the weekend. Right. Painting photorealistic portraits of people that no one gives a fuck about. Is, is that the worst you've copped around the world, what happened in Melbourne? Uh, I've been copping it for years, mate. To be honest, I didn't give a fuck then and I don't give a fuck now. They can think whatever they want. So I tell you what, if they go out and do something decent, then maybe I'd be upset. So what do you hope people will take away from this exhibition, authorised or not? I'd just, like, just like people to come in and see it, and, you know, do what do the best thing about it and to, to take something away from it that means something to them mm. and hopefully to inspire a bunch of people to think it's okay to be artists. And they, again, like, let's go back to me putting a kick into Melbourne. It's like, I don't really understand. There's so much going on in the world. There's so much to speak about. And no one said anything. Like I said, they're painting pretty pictures of their girlfriend up on the wall. Mm. It's just, it seems insane to me that, like, the three biggest graffiti arts in the world, which are Banksy, Shepherd, Fairy, and JR, who all plough a political message, mm. yeah, mm. are the three biggest artists in the world. So I don't understand why they are not the people that are being looked up to and for people to take something from that. So, yeah, I hope that some people go take some of the political sentiment out of it, you know, and pick up the, the legacy that he's, he's left so far. Steve, well, look, I really appreciate the fact that you've taken the time to have a chat with us. Um, I hope the exhibition goes well in Australia, controversy-free, and um, yeah. I look forward to hearing about what comes up next. Okay, brilliant. Cheers, mate. That's Steve Lazaridis, the curator of the Banksy exhibition, now showing at the Entertainment Quarter. And you can buy tickets online at theartofbanksyau.com.au.
That is the podcast for now. If you want any more details regarding anything we've covered, then please do check out our website at www.insidethegallery.com.au. And please do like and share the podcast so others who love art in Australia can listen in. Please also like our Facebook and Instagram page as we post photos and videos of all the stuff we love. And again, you'll find those links to our pages at www.insidethegallery.com.au. And you can get in touch with us there as well. Thanks to our sponsors once again, Pixel Perfect Pro Lab, for all your photographic and print reproduction needs. I'm Tim Stackpole, and as always, reminding you that whenever you're in the gallery, please remove your backpack, okay? Bye-bye for now.